I'm intensive pig farmer, so people have to get their head around that. Um, I'm comfortable with it, and I'm, I'm comfy to talk to people about it. We look after animals. Australia has one of the highest quality assurance programs in the world, and and our staff are very well trained. So I'm comfy that I'm an intensive pig farmer. That's Tim King, Matt, and I'm looking forward to sharing this chat with you. G'day and welcome to episode 28 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Lalive, and it's been a chaotic couple of weeks with the Royal Melbourne show, but we finished that and we're back to just one podcast a week, so I'm practically on a holiday. Today I wanted to sit down and share a conversation I recorded with a good mate and pig farmer from Northern Victoria. Tim Kingmer, or TK, probably one of the most passionate blokes I've ever come across. His involvement with his local community, uh, his support of his workers, his approach to life and, and business, which is so simple. He loves the KISS approach, keep it simple, stupid, has definitely kept me on the straight and narrow a few times. TK's story starts off with a little bit about his time volunteering in South Africa, some of the learnings he got and how he met his now wife, Mariah. He came home, finished off university, went home to Northern Victoria up on the Murray River and began running the family pig farm. We're going to chat about animal welfare, his community, consumer awareness and some of the opportunities in and around pork. As always, I'd absolutely love any questions or feedback you've got and it's easy with TK because I'll just get him on the phone to answer them next time. Enjoy the chat. TK, welcome to the Humans of Ag podcast. Thanks, Ollie, and uh, too calm. <laughs> Mate, it's, I've actually had you on the agenda to speak to. I remember we were driving back from Canberra last year. I actually tried recording the first, like it would have actually been the first ever podcast on my phone when I was asking you a few questions. Well, there you go. Oh, I've, and I've looked, I'm looking forward to it because um, you and I are good mates through our leadership journey and uh, I look forward to talking about ag and my passion for ag and my community. Well, hopefully it comes through. Otherwise, you haven't done a very good job. But I think just, just starting off, TK, can you give us a bit of a heads up of who you are, where you're from, and, and what a day in the life looks like for you? Yeah, no problem. So I live up near Echuca, up on the Mo River, on the border of Victoria, New South Wales. I'm um, in my 40s. So I'm uh, fortunate enough to have a lovely wife and three great kids that are um, all at a great age. We love our sport and our family, so we can go out and have a bit of tennis or a kick of the footy or throw the netball around or hit a hockey ball or soccer ball. And uh, life's a lot of fun outside of work, but I also love my job. And um, and I've fallen into pig farming mainly through uh, my parents. And so touching on, we better go to the sport first. Um, you're saying your kids are at that lovely age, but is it a lovely age when they start to beat you at sport? Oh, that happened years ago. I think <laughs> I think my eldest was. Um, we do a lot of tennis, just a family thing. Probably comes in on the mum side. I'm just a hack, but um, Mariah, my wife, has um, had a lot of coaching, and my kids have had lots of coaching. And I think so. I was 12 when he first beat me. We're actually up at Daniliquin at the Big Four Caravan Park, and we. By the end of it, we had a crowd around the court because I was this big, fat old man sweating and this young little whippersnipper um, <laughs> was making his old man run around and he first time he beat me, it was just before he turned 13. 
Was it the end of the holiday or were you proud that you might have the next tennis star? Uh, no, nah, no, nah, I just cracked another beer. I'm uh, pretty philosophical around that sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I still beat, I still, I can still claim I'm faster than because the last time we ran was over 10 years ago and I beat him and I've never ran against him since. So I'll claim <laughs> that one. <laughs> <laughs> you got him covered. Now, yeah. and there's one thing that st- stands out with your TK. You, I think the first night when we uh, sat down and really got to know each other in the group of legends um, who were the, the 2030 kind of leaders program, um, just that love of your family really came through. And, and for all of us, like, it, it made all of us feel so comfortable, particularly those of us who, who were younger. But it's an interesting story how you met Mariah over in Africa volunteering. Do you want to jump into, into that a little bit and that experience for us? Oh, for sure. Um, I was doing ag science down in Melbourne and I was always coming back to the family farm to, to take over and I was three years into my university course. I had one year to go and I've always had a passion um, for South Africa and Africa and I had a mate in Zimbabwe and I just happened one night to start Googling where I could go volunteer and uh, uh, Youth for Christ was the organisation, had a facility in South Africa in Durban and um, had people from all over the world got to um, volunteer their time and work mainly with youth, and, and that's something I've always enjoyed doing. Uh, the funny little story, and I relate it back to ag, is being a typical ag boy, and you have your BNS balls and your, your college balls. Back in the 90s, I was at one that was called the Crossbreeders Ball, uh, and I think it, had, it might have had a human and a sheep on the hat, <laughs> and um, and that's what I rocked up in the airport when I got off the plane, and and Mariah and another volunteer came pick me up. So I'll let her one day uh, tell people uh, what she thought of me when she saw me. <laughs> what hasn't ever been publicised? <laughs> no, she does laugh about it. It uh, it took me a week or so to um, to realise I'm not that bad a bloke. And what was it about? Well, obviously, so you're googling South Africa, but that that experience that you got there. Was it distinctly different to, to Australia? Like, what, what did you learn there? Well, now that I'm, I'm older and I've done some leadership courses with the ARLP, uh, I've worked in my own community and volunteered in my own community. There's no doubt I could have experienced stuff in Australia. But for me, um, it's amazing. You think about I wasn't a big reader at school and my English teachers and those that know me at school uh, know that I didn't read books very often, but I loved the power of one. And I guess, you know, that had an African theme. I've always liked Wilbur Smith books. And, um, and you know, young 21-year-old, it's nice to travel the world and Africa seemed pretty um, pretty awesome place to go to. And and it was real, honestly, the nine months was unbelievable that I was there. Um, 21, you're very carefree and you don't value your life like I would now with three young kids. But um, had an absolute ball working with kids at risk, um, meeting oh, up to 30 people from around the world, working with them throughout the time, and also working with the, the local staff. Um, that was a real experience. And my personality, I didn't mind being a, a big, tall, um, white person walking around um, areas and drinking with the locals and eating with the locals, and it just made the experience, and I... Um, I would encourage anyone that has a feeling or a passion for it to 
jump in the deep end because you'd absolutely love it. Yeah, and that like jumping in the deep end. Did you did you go over like had you booked yourself in for a certain amount of time or was it just going over seeing what happens and and where you end up? Now I did uh, I did book in for eight months at this particular organisation and then I had a and I actually then booked in for a month in Zimbabwe with my mate that was over there. Uh, the month in Zimbabwe fell out. He had gone back home, and I was I loved where I was, and uh, I just stayed an extra month there. So um, my main role was actually working in schools. I um, I'm I enjoying sport and enjoy the outdoors. It's funny how key moments sort of jump out at you, and they love their soccer. Uh, this particular school, and the girls love their netball, and they they had a field, but it was knee high in grass and. I said, well, how do we mow this so we can do something? And they said, oh, we use whippersnippers. And I thought, oh, yeah, fair enough. I said, well, do you think we can get some? And to being uh, 21, I, the next day when they showed up with half a dozen of them, I ripped my shirt off and um, started whippersnipping. And and it was probably that was a month into my stay. But after I did that and they actually saw me putting back in, my experience in that particular school was um, one I'll never forget. Within a month... We had a carnival from all these schools from around the district, came in for a netball and soccer carnival. And then getting to know the kids, we actually had two kids that were representing the state uh, in this particular school, uh, which was, yeah, it was quite cool. And, and all those doors opened for me. And then all next minute you get the phone call or the principal knocks on, on your door and says, oh, we've actually, they opened up this room and there was all this um, science equipment. I thought, oh, there you go. Why don't they use it for the kids? So we built a science lab, um, you know, took a few nails and hammer in and found some old tables and, you know, just little things like that. We built a library and, um, you know, it was a very good experience. And, and being someone who just got in and did it, they, and then that opened the doors and, um, yeah, had a great time. It's incredible. And met your, your or your wife in the process as well. Yeah, so Mar- and Mariah was there for my first three months. Um, and, yeah, she worked in uh, with women's rights in schools predominantly. Um, so we'd work in different schools during the day, but um, at that age, you know, you'd work hard during the day, but play hard at night. So, um, Sorry, you just said know. it. Did you just say it at that age or did you just say generally? <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess you, I still can drink. I drank with you guys and I was a little bit older than you guys when we were away. So <laughs> uh, I can't do it every, I can't do it every week like I could back then. But, um, you know, we'd have a ball. There was actually a homeless shelter for girls where we lived as the volunteers. So, you know, weekends you'd go down to the beach or you'd take them to a drive in movies. and But then when you're doing that sort of stuff, that's how, yeah, Mariah and I spend many nights um, talking late at night. And um, I often say to people, she was silly enough to move to Australia from America and marry a pig farmer. And so one thing I want to know around South Africa, did you ever feel unsafe there, particularly when you were there in the 90s? Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported? Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, 
and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. Uh, I didn't, but was I? did I put myself in unsafe situations? Yes, but at 21, it didn't worry me. <laughs> you feel invincible. <laughs> yeah, right. Interesting. And then so you finished up there and you came home and... Yeah, finished yeah, yeah. the last year of uni and um, Mariah moved to Australia to do her study um, in mental health field and um, I moved back and started running our farm. Yeah. And how how's the farming business changed? Obviously, yeah, we, we can get to it, but you're now, or you're the president of the, the pork sector of um, the Victorian Farmers Federation and you sit on their board and so obviously you're heavily involved in the industry, but... How's the farming business changed? I guess the farming, uh, it uses technology a lot more. Uh, we we now, like, we're always retrofitting sheds. Like, I'm an intensive pig farmer, so people have to get their head around that. Um, I'm comfortable with it, and I'm, I'm comfy to talk to people about it. Uh, we look after animals. Australia has one of the highest quality assurance programs in the world. Uh, and and our staff are very well trained. So I'm comfy that I'm an intensive pig farmer. And and but what we've done is we've used technology to really look after the environment for the animals. So you know where I am, we have some pretty hot days. We can get to uh, low to mid 40s. So last summer, um, my my most recent shed that we've upgraded, that shed never got over 30.6 for the whole of summer. So. You, you, the animals are very well looked after because of that technology. Um, other things that our our farm and our community's done, we've built a feed mill together. Um, so that's you know one of our biggest costs. So a group of farmers have built that together. And then other things the industry does is look at high health status and things like that. So that um, obviously a higher health animal uh, produces a, a lot better pig and a lot uh, healthier animal. Which is um, which is good for the pig and also the consumer, and I guess uh, you know they're some of the first things that come to my mind. Yeah, and so that's one thing I want to jump into with you because, like, looking from the outside in and throwing a consumer hat on here, we hear a lot about intensive livestock, and the the consumers can be very vocal based off what they of what they see. How do how does I suppose an intensive pig farm vary from, say, a free range, particularly when it comes to things like the animal care and animal welfare? Um, oh, there is differences. Um, but from my point of view, I guess being an intensive pig farmer, I um, a lot of the things we do is obviously about keeping more animals alive. So part of it is uh, people get worried about a farrowing crate, is what we call them. It's where the sow, uh, and it's for four weeks, of her um, of looking after piglets that they're in there and, and yes they are confined but we confine them so that they don't lie on their piglets and at the end of the day a sow is over 200 kilos and up to 350 and a piglet's born at one kilo so um, we're trying to limit you know the loss of those piglets so um, I know some people struggle with the concept of the sow in a confined space but like I said it's four weeks and it's 
in my opinion, saving the other, you know, her litter, the piglets. Um, you can also individually feed the animals uh, when they're in their own individual space for that four weeks. So uh, there is people that, you know, aren't comfy with that, and I, I respect that. Um, that's their decision. I'm comfy that everything we do is um, is thinking about the animal, thinking about, you know, and its progeny, and, uh, and we can really control the environment for both uh, the piglet and the sow. So uh, it's just, yeah, it's one of those tools we use and and uh, we're very comfy with it as an industry. Yeah. And so one thing that you said a couple of years ago when we were chatting and it was around when, oh, I'm going to get this wrong here. So we got the farrowing crates, but then was it sow stools and it was... Oh, yep. So when when there was pressure around the, the removal of sow stools in Australia, you you made a comment that, it was actually worse welfare for your pigs when they were removed. Well, can you can you tell us? I suppose from to understand intensive pig farming, may, or uh, yeah, maybe the, the easiest way to start off with. Can you run us through kind of like the life cycle of what the piglet through to um, when it heads off your farm is like? Yeah, so I guess um, before the so the sow is um, you know mated, gets pregnant um, in the in the past, you could have them in a stall their whole life. Um, and we're talking years ago. Our, as an industry, uh, we were proactive. We're actually the first country in the world that as an industry um, uh, banned the sow stalls, uh, you know, in terms of that whole lifetime. So well, that was a voluntary thing the, the industry did, and it was based on consumer feedback. Um, the ironic thing as a pig farmer, when you make that decision, the reason we went to sow stalls was um, it did help with productivity, so you don't have the fighting, um, and pigs will fight, um, and therefore when you have group hours, you know, you'll have sows that will fight and then therefore abort or get lame. Also, you have different size animals, so if they're in a stall, you can individually feed them. So, um, you know, if one needs a bit more feed than another, and things like that. So there was some welfare impacts of going to store free, but at the end of the day, uh, the consumer buys the meat, so we have to respect that, and and therefore we've gone in and once again use technology. So I'm actually building a new piggery at the moment, and every sale will have electronic ear tags. They'll be in the big group housing. They'll go through the feeders. I'll be able to set the computer for what amount of feed I want that sale to have. And, and we just had to adapt and use technology to help um, bring those stress levels down. Yeah, right. So is that one of the – will it be one of the most advanced kind of piggeries oh, in Australia or not? Well, uh, will it use the most latest technology? Yes, but other piggeries are doing it. But obviously uh, the whole farm's brand new, so the whole piggery's going to be at the most latest technology. And I think where our industry can be real proud and people don't uh, probably understand it. And then the pig farmers don't sell their story either, is that my plan with this farm will be it'll be carbon neutral as a farm. So I plan on capturing methane off the effluent dam, you know, in, and, 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 and creating energy to go back into the farm. Once you have generators running, you can capture heat, which can go back into heating, you know, the smaller piglets. Uh, we can use our effluent as a fertiliser. So... You're creating Piggeries, a real uh, circular system. It is, it is, and and I guess they're the stories that we have to talk about 
as industries because, you know, people think of pig farmers and, and have a negative thought. And we need to tell our story that actually it's quite positive, guys. Um, and we've been too shy for too long not to talk about our great stories and, and, and the great things we're doing. The other thing is because it's intensive, we employ a lot of people, you know, so that's also great for, for communities. Like where there's a pig farm, you're going to employ, you know, a number of the people, a number of families, keeps schools open, it keeps supermarkets and all these other flowing effects. So, um, yeah, I think it's a, a real positive. And on that note, like, I suppose you're, you're in that Murray River region of, um, of, of Victoria, it touches right on to New South Wales, obviously, but over the last few years, there's been a lot of uh, contentious issues around water rights and uh, like, how, how is the drought and then the subsequent, I suppose, the, the inability to access water um, affected kind of your mates and, and your community more broadly? Yeah, water has been massive for us. Um, I'm going to be honest, I don't know the ins and outs of it. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, when I was a kid, um, over 20 years ago, there was green grass everywhere, but there was the wildlife. And that's what I, I think would sometimes be missed in this whole water. Irrigated farms was actually a wetland. Like I remember barolgas nesting every year at the farm. Um and things like that. We just don't see them anymore. Um, the the ibis, you know, you see it in paddocks now. They've got to congregate um, at the local rubbish tip and things like that. So I think that's been a flow on effect. And the other flow on effect is that people, if you don't own the water, it's just sort of priced them out to be dairy farmers um, a lot of the time, which, you know, it's been tough because to get into agriculture, there is a lot of capital. And, um, and at the end of the day, we need the next generation being able to get into agriculture, whichever one they're passionate about. And dairy farming in this area has become a lot harder to get into and a lot harder to stay stay in it. Yeah. Do you think, um, will your kids get involved in the family farm or do they show interest? Um, I'm not sure. I, I don't uh, push anything. I um, Most would that know my family would have said my brother would never come back to the farm. And he's project managing the uh, the new expansion. So the thing about a pig farm is it can take so many different skill sets. So if you've got a someone who's good on computers with the, the technology and all that that um, that's run on the phone, and me watching my farms from my phone, uh, my brother's an electrician by trade, um, my dad's an accountant by trade, so and I'm a I'm a pig farmer, so. I guess if my kids one day come back and say, I want to be on it, I think a farm, a pig farm, you can adapt different skill sets because you need so many different ones. Just, I'm going to do a a backflip because I went down the the path of water, but you're talking about how the industry promotes itself. But I was going to say from from the outside looking in, the pork industry with the the slogan, get some pork on your fork, uh, has been incredibly catchy and it seems to be, Really good, but are you saying there, there's a whole lot more that, or a much larger role that farmers need to play in actually promoting the industry, as opposed to just the the industry bodies? <laughs> yeah, um, but how do you answer it? I think we've all been throwing around for years. How do we sell the story to the consumer? Uh, we we all feel that, and we all believe that uh, consumers 
um, think farmers are trustworthy, it's it's up to us farmers to actually prove it. And when we you talked about the VFF board, um, one of my fellow directors, uh, Leonard's son, he's always on social media um, and selling his story uh, and has a twist on it. And I think I think the consumer wants to know real families and what they're really doing. Um, and I and I. And I'm not sure how we get there because we've been talking about it for so long, but um, I don't want to create a divide. And I don't want to say that there's this country and city divide because I don't believe in that. But I do believe we've got to tell our story to the consumer, wherever that consumer may be, that um, we are passionate about our animals. We're passionate about the families we work with. We're passionate about our communities. Um, and, and if you like to eat meat, well, get in and support us. Naturally, and we've talked about it a thousand times, there's, there's a bell curve of people that you can influence, people you can't influence. And, and some of those are at the extreme level. The same way there's farmers who you're never going to change their mindset. But at that other end um, with like, the activists and the farm trespass piece, did, did you worry at all last year when all of that came to a head? Oh, I'm, we're always worried as farmers. Um, you know, we have families living at you know, on our farm. Um, and at the end of the day, every staff member I employ is passionate about our animals. Um, you know, we put, um, we talk around the smoko table, you know, about, oh gosh, at the moment, you know, we wean, wean this number of pigs per sow and, oh, that's what I'm aiming for. And, and But we're always trying to get better and, and they're always trying to look after and do the best. So, um I'll never change uh, the extreme point of view because at the end of the day, they don't want any farm animals. They don't want any of the feeding meat or any animal products. Um, and I can't agree with that, and that's my personal point of view. And But what I can do is, is really lobby for it to be safe for me and my staff, my family, uh, so we can do what we're doing legally and, um, and abiding by all the legal rules that we do in Australia, and I think our standards and rules are higher than majority of countries. So, um, but then I would say, if there's ever a rogue farmer out there, I'll be the first to dob him in because I don't, I don't want to see that either. Yeah, no, which is good. Like it's, it's the same in any industry, and it's just, it's bloody funny how, yeah, the, the minority groups can pick up a lot. Farming just seems to be able to get one bad egg, and it just ruins the lot for everyone. Whereas. Other industries, it, it just doesn't seem to get the same reaction as farmers do. So I'm very glad to hear that. On the, on the topic you were just talking about, Australia's high standards, and you'd have to be, I'll call it, you'd have to be one of the biggest advocates around supporting Australian farmers and um, Australian pork. And I love the video you did. We're going to have to get you to do it again for this Christmas, talking about when it comes to buying the leg ham for, for the family. But... Yeah, one thing that's really interesting around the supermarket aisle in Australia is if you go and buy pork or any pork product, ham, bacon, whatever it may be, just how little of it is actually Australian. Yeah. And even at the moment, I I see your fast food chains talking about um, showing how much Australian their burger is. But if you look at the burgers of the lowest, it's the ones with bacon in it. Um you know, we only need them to push the processed meat sector in Australia to want to use Aussie bacon, uh, which is such a small part of their burger, and then they, their burgers would be 
Um, the same in the deli. Um, you won't go to a deli and see Aussie bacon at all, if ever. Um, yeah, we are starting to get some traction. You can buy it on the on the on the shelf package, which is great. And I bought some tonight. Even um, I bought over a kilo off the package stuff, and it was two dollars a kilo extra. Which at the end of it all, sweet nothing. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, pork products in Australia over sixty percent of them, or around sixty percent, are actually imported because so many of the pork products eaten in Australia is processed. And majority of the processed meats are imported meats. So, uh, you talked about the video I like to do around Christmas time, and it's really trying to get people to think about their their ham at Christmas. Um, and if it's got a bone in it, it's going to be Australian. But throughout the year, if you're buying your ham for your kids' lunches, like when you go to the deli, there's ham off the bone, and it'll say it's 100% Australian. But if you just get the honey ham, uh, and then look at the fine print, it'll just be all imported. So. Um, but then I, I say that about my industry, but I I really, really want to push that whatever you're buying, look for Aussie. Um, whether it's seafood, whether it's um, any meat, uh, and even now dairy, dairy products can be from different countries. So really want to just push the, the thought of look at the labels. It's really not that hard to look. Yes, it can be small at times, but once you know where you're looking, um, why not support Aussie families that, that pay higher rates for staff, we have higher welfare standards for animals, um, and we think we're trying to be as competitive as we can be. Yeah, absolutely. It's an, it's an interesting one, like, and this is such a dumb question, but like, why isn't there more Australian pork products on the supermarket shelf? Predominantly, uh, the processed meats have come from countries that uh, are sending out uh, cheap cuts that they're just trying to, to move and they can come into other markets, which is ours, the processed meats. Um, because the, anyone that's been to America, they don't eat the bacon that we eat. They eat the more the streaky bacon. Um, so, you know, that big eye in yeah. America, they call it Canadian bacon. And, um, yeah, so they can send it, you know, send that in bulk. Uh, also, an, an Australian market, we are very small players. Like, there's companies hold big corporate pig farms around the world that are, you know, over twice the size of the Australian pig industry. Um, so, you know, once you get that big, you can supply a real consistent product. So that's part of Australia. We've got to get better. And, and who knows? Um, like I said earlier in this chat, we had five farmers that built a feed mill together. Maybe the pig farmers and a lot do this already, but, you know, fell together. So you can market your pigs um, in different ways. Because you got the big group numbers. Yeah, absolutely. I got um. So I had green eggs on the podcast a while ago, and we did the video yep. out there. Do you, like, would you guys ever do um, branded pork products? You guys could team up with them, green eggs and ham. I I, I never have uh, really contemplated it because um, what I say to many people from all different walks is I know what I'm good at. I'm good at uh, understanding pigs and growing pigs. Yeah. Um, I'm not a marketer. It's the same with uh, I pay someone to be a genetic the genetic company. I pay someone to my veterinarian. I, I pay a nutritionalist because they're all skilled in those areas. So for me, I guess if one day I had a kid that was in marketing and had a passion for the business, might be a different answer to you. But for me, I can't see it happening. I have a really uh, unique uh, relationship with a family in Melbourne that 
um, sells a lot of the pigs into markets and butcher trade in Melbourne. So we're a family farm, they're a family business, and it works really well together. Yeah, lovely. And so you were just touching on if you had a kid in marketing, but in terms of one question that I've just decided, which I'm asking everyone when they come on the podcast, is if you were talking to a bunch of young students about, uh, sorry, yeah, if you were talking to a bunch of young kids in, say, year 10 or 11, and you were talking about opportunities in, in and around agriculture, what would be your message to them about why the industry could potentially be fulfilling and, and give them a purpose? Uh, yeah, so I, I'll answer it in two ways. One, if you're going back to a family farm, I would really highly recommend uh, some sort of business degree. Um, farming now, it doesn't matter what you're in, uh, has uh, is you know business and the way it's run and the amount of money you're dealing with. Um, you can't be just old school and and you know well that's how we've always done it. Um, you really need to be switched on with a business mind. So that's what I, I say to people that are thinking you've come back to their own home farm. You can go off and do an ag degree like I did, but at the end of the day, that ag degree over all fields of agriculture, and, and I knew a lot about pigs when I went. So um, I would, you know, that's what I would really highlight. The other side is if people just want to get into ag, and I'll advocate for the pig industry. Uh, because it's a generally intensive industry, you know, there's careers in nutrition, there's careers in, in vet science, there's um, career in vaccine manufacture, there's careers in um, constructions of sheds, uh, and there's careers in caring for of the pigs themselves. So, And the other thing is, you know, pig farming, you know, has always had a bit of a, a bad name in terms of, of, you know, you go to work, in a smell environment, but with the new technologies of airflows and controlling all those sort of things, piggeries don't smell like they used to. And and the satisfaction of working in a team and, and watching animals grow and all those sort of things, very rewarding. And there is scope to grow in organisations. And, and the bigger, you know, the real bigger farm, you know, there's a very, very well-paid jobs with a great living. Um, working with animals and in the outdoors like it's um there's a great career there to be had in uh, the pig industry i love it i love it tk well mate thanks <laughs> are you, are you gonna the... throw your are you gonna throw your job in and just come work for me now is that what you're saying yeah you're gonna uh you're gonna employ me <laughs> i would perfect for sure what um do i get to work on the floor or, or where do i get to work where are you gonna put me uh, mate? <laughs> oh, well, I'll send you out with my brother at the moment because they're flat out building new sheds. So that's um, they're the ones working the hardest. So we're gonna break you in that way, so you know know all the new technology. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Sign me up. <laughs> well, episode twenty-eight, and I apologise that things were a bit rushed for that. Um, I'd love your feedback on length of episode. If you guys can get in touch with me, either. Ollie at humansofagriculture.com if you got an email um, or jump on the Instagram at humansofagriculture with an underscore. I'm very interested in looking at do we make the episode shorter and more, yeah, more condensed or do we keep them about this length, leave them as just conversations 
I would love your feedback. Next week, I have got a guest. I've already recorded it. I was going to release her this week, but I'm going to hold on to her. We're chatting about live exports. So it's from one intensive industry to the other, um, and they're definitely conversations that we need to have. Look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane, and I look forward to joining you again next week. Cheers.